For over 13 years, Randall Stevenson served as the CEO of AT&T. He's been employed by the company his entire professional life and remains its executive chairman to this day. In 1876, Alexander Graham Bell invented the telephone. That was the foundation of the company that would become AT&T, a global powerhouse that's now synonymous with innovation in communications. After all, this was the company that first powered the iPhone, a company that recently acquired Time Warner, and along with it, movie studios, and HBO, and global sports broadcasting. The language I like to use, you use convenience, and I, I think that's good language. What I like to use, especially in a business setting, is effortless. If you can make it effortless, mm -hmm. you win. As the company's leader, Randall has naturally found himself at the intersection of technology, communication, and entertainment for much of his life. But it wasn't always thus. Growing up in Oklahoma, he started out in animal husbandry. Yes, you heard that correctly. But life experience has taught him that for a person or business to thrive, they must be vigilant about maintaining empathy for others. I am a strong believer that you can never really strike a good deal. And a good deal is, is really good for you mm. and it's really good for them. You can't strike a really good deal if you don't have an inherent ability to empathize with the other person, understand where they're coming from. I'm Miles Fisher, and this is Coffee with the Greats, a podcast that explores what it means to be great and how we can chart our own paths to get there. Joining me on the ones and twos, my partner in banter, Richard Fisher, a former central banker who also happens to be my dad. In today's episode, we talk to Randall Stevenson about maintaining an emotional quotient and the critical value of diversity. He describes to us how uprooting his family to Mexico earlier in his life served as the catalyst to becoming the CEO of the largest telecommunications company in the world. So brew a cup of coffee, sit back, and enjoy a special episode of Coffee with the Greats. My mom took care of three kids, and my dad was what I would call a serial entrepreneur. It's always a good question. We're not sure what all he did, everything from insurance <laughs> to the cattle business. The last huh. half of his life, mainly the cattle business. And was, was there a sense of um, that nothing necessarily was permanent because he was always shifting jobs? Was it, how how did, did he identify mostly as an entrepreneur above all else? Yeah, I, I don't think... I went to the same elementary school two years consecutively. We moved a lot. Hmm. I, uh, it was this it all was, within Oklahoma. This was, uh, except for two years in Lubbock, Texas. I'm sorry. He, he opened a business <laughs> in Lubbock, Texas, and that didn't go so well. So we moved back to Oklahoma. But it was a strange childhood because there were years when our jeans never became too short. Our shoes never became too small. And then there were other years where I would wear jeans till they were halfway up my shins, right? Yeah. And so the, you could tell the income. You don't think about it as a kid, but as, as you reflect back on it, you go, oh, those were the lean years. Those were the years he wasn't doing so well. These were the years he was doing quite well. And so you can reflect on all of those. Did you have, tell me about your siblings. I had an older brother, had, have an older brother. He's 16 months older than me. We grew up very, very close. Irish twins. <laughs> Irish <laughs> twins. And I have a brother who's five years younger. The older brother, I like to say, I, I started working at AT&T the old-fashioned way. My brother got me on, right? <laughs> he got me my job. He is still an installer in Norman, Oklahoma for AT&T, installs telephones and broadband in, wow. in Norman, Oklahoma. And were there 
any particular qualities that stood out as, as your parents valuing the most as you all were growing up or uh, a phrase or a motto that your dad would try to hammer home or your, or your mom in your youth? My dad, there's a trait in my dad that I, I grew to admire, and it's a trait that I have to sometimes suppress in my own personality. That is, my father had a risk profile that was rather high, mm-hmm. and uh, the idea of betting at all was not unusual to him. And, and he would find a business venture, and he would be all in. And oftentimes they would succeed. A lot of times they wouldn't. Yeah. And my dad told me one time, he said, I don't believe you will ever be wildly successful until you have failed in a very large fashion. Because as long as you fear failing, you'll never take the appropriate risk to succeed in mm-hmm. a large fashion. And uh, it's one of those things that sticks with you, right? Now, he had a risk profile that could never work in, in corporate America, right? <laughs> but uh, he was a classic Oklahoma City, Dallas, Texas. We see these people in Dallas. I think it is unique in this part of the country to have people with those type of risk profiles. You were saying uh, no more than two years at the same elementary school. Did that extend all the way up through high school? Were you continually moving every every year, every two years? No. Once I got in junior high, we we pretty well stayed put. And uh, so I went through the same junior high and the same high school, my brothers and, and I. And what was what was kind of your life outside the classroom? Were you you and your brothers involved in sports? Did you have any passions or hobbies that started early? Yeah, it's was, it was, it was interesting. My my oldest brother was an incredible athlete, track athlete. And he set state marks that stood till like he's 16 months older than me. These state marks stood till like two or three years ago. Right? So, wow. An amazing athlete. I was the smallest, scrawniest kid you've ever seen until I was about a junior in high school. And, and then all of a sudden, I just grew to the height you're seeing here now overnight. And I was like a calf walking on ice, right? And so <laughs> I, I have zero athletic capabilities. I love golf, but I stink at it because I just don't have good uh, hand-eye coordination. That, right? <laughs> and, uh, but I love it, and I love sports, but I, I played a trumpet and I've always had kind of musical inclinations, and so I had some musical skills. But, uh, you know, in, in Moore, Oklahoma, football is king. Sure. And you guys in the band, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and so my brother, you know, he and I were very close, and so his buddies. And it was, looked, you know, it was kind of frowned upon to be in the band, Randall. But uh, I did. I was I was accomplished at trumpet, but I would never apply myself. And I... I, this is an interesting, another one of these interesting life lessons. I made a comment to our band instructor that I never got the best pieces in band because you just don't like me. And, and he didn't, right? Was, <laughs> and he had good cause not to like he me. Knew it. And so he finally said, you know what? The next tryouts, I'm going to put it to the test. We're going to do blind tryouts. Everybody will do their tryouts behind a screen. Hmm. I was always third trumpet or second trumpet, right? Hmm. He did this blind tryout. I was first chair trumpet, man. <laughs> it's got to feel good. <laughs> you couldn't see my face. You know, I got first chair. I thought, wow, this is really cool. I was right. You were wrong. Yeah. He told me I was wrong, right? And so it was one of those lessons. And did you did you stick with it? Did you play the trumpet through yeah. college? As soon as I could get out of it, I got out of it. It just wasn't cool, man. You know. <laughs> so growing up, did you have, other than your brother, your father, and your family, who were your idols? 
Or what, or what poster did you have on your wall? Yeah, that's right. Oh, well, I had Farrah Fawcett, of well. course. <laughs> There's a every kid, every kid, kid had Farrah Fawcett. That's right. But uh, interestingly enough, uh, Roger Staubach. How interesting. Yeah. In fact, I told Roger, Roger and I played golf together a few years ago. My father passed away a number of years ago. And we're on the 18th green putting out. And I told Roger of all the things I've been blessed to do in my life. Were my father alive, the thing he'd be most impressed and pleased by is me standing here playing golf with Roger Staubach, right? <laughs> so we were huge Dallas Cowboy fans, and, and Roger was an idol of mine. Yeah. You said your your brother kind of got you your first job with uh, right. with this small company, uh, AT&T. Is it, was that shortly after college? Were you no, working I, jobs while you, were, while you were an undergrad? I was in college, and... Uh, my wife and I decided we would get married, and my wife said, great, you need to go to work. <laughs> so I had to get a job, and my brother was working at what was then Southwestern Bell Telephone. Okay. And uh, he got me a job working late nights in the weekends, mounting magnetic tapes on tape drives. Mm-hmm. And I would do this for 12 hours a night, every Friday, Saturday, and Sunday night, and uh, get up on Monday morning and go attend college classes and and uh, and finished school. Wow. What did they pay you? You know what? It was kind of interesting because I was a union employee, which meant that since it was weekends, I got time and a half ah. for the first 12 hours, then double time and a half for the second 12 hours. And so I was making, you know, I was rich. We were making fourteen, fifteen thousand a year, me working weekends. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's pretty good. It was actually at the time pretty good. Yeah. Did you and your wife meet in college? No, we met in junior high. I've known my wife... For as long as I can remember. She used to carry my trumpet to the bus after school for me, right? <laughs> you were a scrawny kid. I was a very scrawny kid. <laughs> yeah, and it seems like the trumpet factors into your life more than you let on. <laughs> you know, I actually, it's one of those things. I, I gained pleasure out of playing it. I gained uh-huh. pleasure out of performing. And uh, I, I love the symmetry of music. And I, I think music is beautiful. I, I still love the orchestra. Nobody else in my family does, so I have to go by myself if I want to go. But yeah, it's something I gained a lot of pleasure from. Well, and it's a, a language you always keep a natural fluency in. If Absolutely. you start when you're young and you're a musician. Like riding a bicycle, you, you really, it's pretty hard yeah, to forget. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Shifting into your profession early on, uh, was, there a, was there a moment that you recall where you just knew, this is what I want to do? Or perhaps this is the company that I want to... Uh, I want to hang my hat on and I want to raise the ladder as much as I can. Yeah, there was a, a very seminal moment. I My early college days, I was studying animal husbandry. My dad was in the cattle business and I had done a lot of work for him, working cattle and in the cattle feed business. And so I, I went into animal husbandry mm. and uh, it was a hot August afternoon in Stillwater, Oklahoma. And I was in a class where I was in a very compromising position with a mama cow at 105 degrees asking myself, what in the hell are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> and I, I went and spoke to a, uh, a professor of mine that where I had to take some business classes. And he said, you know, this accounting stuff and this business stuff, you have a unique aptitude for this. In fact, my accounting professor, I got nothing but 100s on the test. He says, that doesn't happen in my classes. Wow. You should really consider this. 
And I remember calling my dad saying, you know, I don't think I'm into this animal husbandry thing after all, and I want to move to business school. And he said, I think you ought to. So <laughs> I think we need to clarify a compromising position. You were delivering calf. Is that what you were doing? Examining uh, cow. Uh, Otherwise, it sounds odd. I think the technical term would be palpating. (laughs) Yes. Okay. (laughs) We'll leave that for the listeners. (laughs) Can you talk for a second? Because I I know you had a similar instance in college at the Naval Academy that a professor said, you have a knack for this and it's not being met. And it really changed the course of your life. Yeah, it did. It was an English professor who said, you should go to Ivy League school. And I was thinking, you want to get rid of me or what? But uh, rather than being a naval engineer, which is what I was going to be, um, that in economics, they said, you should be focused on that, and we can't provide that. It's very telling, isn't it? Yeah. That here's two situations where... Well, but it's also, Randall, don't you think that luck plays a good part in someone's life? Or, or at least serendipity? Luck, destiny, fate, whatever you want to call it. Right. Yeah, there are, there are these moments where an event happens, and it does have just a fundamental shift in how you think about the world and what your pursuits and interests are, yeah. So then what did you do after that, as far as... The practice of accounting. So I I studied accounting in the course of two years, gained an accounting degree uh, while I was working uh, at Southwestern Bell doing this late night uh, job. Actually, after a year of hanging tapes, they gave me a job where I was actually doing computer programming, Hmm. which, by the way, to this day is still the favorite job I've ever had. (laughs) Why 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 is that? that? Late night, middle of the night, everybody's asleep. And you are having to fix programming errors and so forth, Hmm. just there by yourself with a cup of coffee and just focus and grind and just fix problems. And when you got it fixed and you ran the job and it worked, there was a sense of gratification (laughs) like nothing else. You know, I just absolutely loved it. Uh, Do you you still find that you do some of your best deep thinking late at night? Early in the morning. Hmm. I I wake up usually at 4.30 in the morning and I invest literally two hours to myself. So walk us through that. I mean, do you exercise? Do you just read? What do you read? I, uh, I read a wide variety of things. First of all, I hit every periodical you can think of. I obviously have religious convictions, right. so I, I, I do reading in that particular area, a lot of meditation, and then a lot of just, when I, I have a card here that I can't let you look at, but there are five things on here that it really consuming me right now. Hmm. I spend my time on those five things in the morning. Hmm. All right. And, uh, and these aren't all business matters. Largely they are. Okay. So largely you, they are. You're taking a perspective from different quarters then to help right. inform you on these decisions you have exactly. to make or strategy. One of these is a very difficult personnel decision right. that I'm dealing with right now. Right. And I just really think it through, how do I want to address this? But if it's on that card in the morning, it gets dealt with. But you write that card at night or in the morning when you get up? Uh, every it's, evening before I go to bed, I transfer what's on that card that what's on tomorrow's card. Always by hand. Always just handwritten on an index card. And does that relieve you of sort of tossing and turning it during the night of thinking about these things? So you know you're going to have to focus on them the next day. I'm just curious. You know, sometimes you get preoccupied with something. and My my philosophy when you're doing jobs like we do is you can too easily get distracted by the next shiny object. And there has to be a forced discipline on focusing your valuable time. The shareholders are paying a lot for my time. Mm -hmm. And I have to ensure that they're focused on only what matters. And I should not spend a moment on anything that doesn't matter. I paid too much money to focus on things that don't matter. 
And so this is my discipline of ensuring that I'm spending my time, my waking hours, my effort, my energy, and my money on the things that matter. So you get up at 4.30. You've got a list that you're going to focus on during the day. Right. But at the same time, you scan the periodicals. Um, I read most of them in depth. I, I just, I read, like Wall Street Journal, I read probably 75% of the words in every morning's journal. Mm-hmm. FT, probably 50%. New York Times, probably 30%. And, of course, the Dallas Morning News. And I scan the Dallas Morning News. <laughs> and it, it, these are mostly being read still in print, old-fashioned no, newspaper? I haven't had a print subscription in probably six or seven years. I take no print subscriptions to anything. Yeah. Remember, Randall's just a millennial, so... <laughs> Don't I wish, man. <laughs> if I knew now at that age, my, what we could have done, right? <laughs> Are you a coffee guy in the morning? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to a very unhealthy extent. If you're yeah. getting up at 4.30, you're a coffee guy. <laughs> yes, I'm a coffee guy. Do you like to have your fitness done before you come into the office? I do. In the morning? Yeah. So part of this, you know, 4.30 regimen is a an exercise routine. When yeah. do you like to be... In bed in the evenings, if you could control it. Don't say 6.30, please. <laughs> but not too far off, right? It's, it's more like 9.30. Yep. Yeah, I like to be in bed at 9.30. Last night I was in bed at 9.15. Not and bad. And I was asleep at 9.20. And do you still read off a screen uh, in bed before you're going to bed? I read off a screen, and if I watch anything, uh, a video, I watch that off an iPad. Yeah, so it's in a screen. Any media preferences in terms of shows or movies or? It's interesting. Uh, my friends all give me a hard time because I, I'm not a large media consumer. I consume a lot of news right? and uh, sports. I, I love sports. I love college football. But outside of that, I've never been much of a consumer of media or entertainment on a video screen. And as we were acquiring DirecTV, a lot of my friends from Silicon Valley one of them now sits on our board, had a lot of fun at my expense talking about, you know, you're spending $60 billion on a media company. And, you don't know what uh, it is. You, don't know <laughs> you haven't watched it. <laughs> so and now we're buying Time Warner, right? And uh, I've, I've actually uh, engaged in it a lot since we acquired DirecTV just because I need to understand the business and, you know, developing my own sense of taste around content and media and so forth. And so uh, I'm consuming more than I have. I, I have actually been really impressed by Game of Thrones in mm. terms of the storyline and mm. what these writers are able to do with these characters and how you can just find yourself consumed by these characters. And, and this new world of TV I find fascinating. You know, these series like Game of Thrones, how you can develop characters and how you can develop relationships and so forth that just engage an audience. Really like develop nothing. an entire world. Yeah, it's an entire amazing. culture. I agree. Well, and and it, the quality of that character development is being met in production value. I mean, that's what's so extraordinary to me. <clears throat> I, I hear, one hears all the time in, in Los Angeles in the entertainment industry, whatever happened to the $30 million feature? Why aren't they making that anymore? It's either real entry level, one to five million, or it's $200 million tentpoles. Yeah. And I think that's, that's what you see on TV with high production value. I mean, Game of Thrones, this Netflix show, The Crown, right. they're spending on average eight and a half million dollars per episode. Well, you string three of those together, 
that's just shy of, of you know, two and a half hours. That's your third. And it's, and it's such a better value proposition for the consumer. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, it is the golden age of TV, man. I huh. am convinced this is an amazing age for TV. But yeah. watched on so many different platforms. Yeah. That's, that's the amazing thing too. I, I don't know if I'm unique in this regard. I know the millennials consume it all on a mobile screen, mm-hmm. but I got to tell you, I find a mobile screen a very gratifying experience on premium TV. Game of Thrones on a la- on a uh, I'm, I'm the tablet on the on mm-hmm. an airplane is a really good experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I found that uh, humans are loyal to convenience. You I mean. Your Nespresso machine, they couldn't make it any easier on you. That's exactly right. And so you're loyal to that. I have a, a friend, successful director, and he was telling me an anecdote the other night. You know, he's a director, so they have a nice, uh, they built a beautiful screening room in their house. And uh, it's rather fancy, and the whole wall is a, is a screen. And he was throwing a party, and his two young children ran up and said, Daddy, Daddy, can we use the new screening room? It had just been completed. He said, sure, set it up. I'll duck in there in about 30 minutes. And uh, 30 minutes later, he goes into this beautiful screening room, and uh, it's very quiet. He thinks maybe something's gone wrong. And they're both sitting in these two beautiful chairs right in <laughs> front, is going at. pitch black, <laughs> hunched over an iPad. He said, what are you guys doing? What are you doing? I just spent a fortune setting up. And they said, no, Daddy, this is better. Whatever that means, this is better. This is our way of doing it. So they're just sitting in a big, plush room and a nice couch, hunched over their iPads. But that is the... Convenient behavior. The language I like to use, you use convenience, and I I think that's good language. What I like to use, especially in a business setting, is effortless. If you can make it effortless, Mm -hmm. you win. Yeah, well, that requires no effort. It's so easy to engage. Right, right. It becomes just a habit. And in e-commerce, the word is frictionless. Frictionless, right? Yeah. Yeah. So this idea of uh, unless you've failed at something, you're not going to succeed. Right, what did you ever fail at? <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's time for uh, confession, yeah. Randall. <laughs> you, you will be familiar with one of these because I've had to overcome this to, to take our company to where it is today. And that is I, uh, I took a risk on trying to do a transaction, T-Mobile, to acquire a, a mobile carrier. And we knew that there was risk in terms of getting regulatory approval of this transaction and the government sued us, they blocked it, and we had to pay $3 billion cash to, uh, to this company when we broke up. That's painful. Your right? dad never would have thought <laughs> in that order of dimension. <laughs> and, uh, and, and so you spend, people still talk about or will write about in the Wall Street Journal, the T-Mobile debacle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? I always wince when I read that. <laughs> and, and so uh, along you know, you go, you, you just plow forward, you keep moving. And in our business, if you want to transform your business, you usually need some type of, of catalytic event. And I like M&A to accomplish that. And so DirecTV, you know, we're coming to do DirecTV and that can be nothing but in the back of one's mind hmm. as you're contemplating this and thinking about what if the government sues us again, two strikes, right? And, and are you prepared to take this risk again? And it was a, this was a, one of those moments where you just, in the quiet of your office at home, you just pause and think long and hard about... So it, but, but it sharpens the pencil. It sharpens the pencil. Oh, my. Right. 
And and not only does it sharpen the pencil, but you become smarter from your failures, mm. and uh, and you learn a lot of things from your failures. And and there, it's multifaceted. I my pencil got sharper, meaning my my analytical skills and how I thought about the structuring of a transaction, how I thought about contracting for a transaction, how I thought about breakup fees, how I thought about PR and government affairs, all of that. I had a whole different worldview by virtue of my failure. Mm. And, uh, and that worldview has been very instrumental as we've gone forward and do, done other things as well. Um, were there any moments where you sort of thought, you know, there's too much pressure. I can't do this. Bouncing out family and rising to the top of one of the largest corporations in the world. And, or did you never feel that? I, I can't ever recall a moment where I said, I can't do it anymore. And I, I'm, I'm out. I, uh, and I, I don't know if that's unique or not. It's probably not. I think most people who have, uh, you know, accomplished some things in, in business or life or arts or whatever probably have a similar makeup. And that is I'm not focused on that out there. I'm kind of focused. I've, I've set my direction on where I want to go, but then I get focused on what do I have to do right now? And uh, what do I have to be doing right here, right now, at this moment to advance me towards that. And as long as you keep the vision out there where you're trying to go clear, then it makes really what you have to do right now that much more focused and disciplined. For example, the card you carry in your pocket. Exactly. You update every now and then. There is nothing on that card that you would look at and say, wow, that's really intimidating. That You can't do No, everything that makes it to that card becomes task-oriented, all right? I got to make decisions, but they're they're tasking decisions, all right? And so it's it keeps your mind from just being absorbed with the gravity and the weight of everything around you. Okay, I, I do think the mornings, the meditation, you do reflect back and and are you focused on the right things? But uh, the way I keep that in check, and I encourage my people around here to do this a lot, and that is once a year. I don't do it as long as I used to, but once a year, two days, go away, no TV, no media, no nothing my profession, my family, my faith. Uh-huh. Am I where I need to be on all of those? Nothing but two days on every bit of that. And the reason I do this is I don't. we know so many people who get to a certain point in life and they're going, man, it's been 30 years. How did I end up here, right? Mm-hmm. And I've just always said, I will never do that, all right? It's going to be very deliberate. And so once a year, I deliberately ask myself, am I where I want to be? Am I where I with my family where I want to be? Am I in my profession where I want to be with my friends and with my health and with my faith, right? And if I just think if you if we're disciplined about doing that, you should never conceivably get to a point where you say, How the hell did I get here? Mm-hmm. Right? But, At the same time, you also, through that kind of exercise, can maintain humility. Right. I mean, you're a big deal. And there are a lot of big deals. But Nobody around me thinks I'm a big deal. Well, I don't think you know? you're a big deal. <laughs> it's my case, right? <laughs> no, but, my wife doesn't think I'm a big well, deal. Well, that's my the great humbler of all. Of all. <laughs> but um, so I think the question is, how do you keep a balance? That's really the issue. And it's interesting you go through this exercise, in a sense, to keep balance. Put yourself in perspective. Yeah, maybe I'll challenge that a little bit, Richard, because I, uh, I don't. Hmm. And uh, I would venture to say that there is... You'd be hard-pressed to identify anybody that has achieved anything of significance with balance. Mm. 
I mean, I knew Steve Jobs quite well. He didn't achieve what he achieved with balance. And you can go through politics, you know, whether it be President Lincoln uh, or Churchill or, you know, any of the great business leaders of our time, any of the great spiritual leaders of our time, Martin Luther King Jr., that man had no balance. Hmm. All right. And so I I think, and by the way, I gave this at a commencement ceremony at Oklahoma University and it was not received quite well. Hmm. But I, I do believe that if, if you believe you've been called or if you aspire to do something of significance, it probably is not going to be achieved with any mo- any modicum of balance in one's life. You have to be driven or you acquire the drive and, and you, a focus. And you better, you know, you better partner well, right. you know, partner or marry well. And, and right. if, uh, you know, if I have always said my wife is probably one of the key reasons I've been afforded the luxury of doing what I do because she's, not a terribly needy. In fact, my wife, if I'm home two nights in a row now, she starts to say, don't you have something What's to wrong with you? <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's important. And because uh, I do, I am very convinced that it's probably, a, yeah, unless point. you're just some freakishly smart individual, it's hard right. to do with balance. That's a very good point. But I imagine this practice of uh, technology Sabbath for a few days, canceling out all the noise and distractions and focusing on the, the core tenets of one's life that matters helps you anchor your identity. Yeah. I mean, I was going to ask how much of your uh, job is of your personal identity, and it's it's just a part. And you're also a husband, you're also a father, and uh, you're also a servant of your faith, um, which is a constant in your meditation and prayer, a constant reminder that there are forces much powerful than any of us out there in the world. Um, so... I understand what you're saying about balance, but um, it seems to help anchor your identity uh, of the many stools that make you up outside of just what yeah, you do no, that's, for a living. That's very well said, Miles. And I, I was being provocative with Richard <laughs> in terms of the, the balance thing. There's, there's not balance in terms of the time I spend in a day. Uh, it, it, it way over-indexes to AT&T. You're you devoted to, yeah, as you said, you, Deliver to your shareholders because they're paying a hell of a lot of money. Exactly. Right. Now, to your point, and you, you said it beautifully. I wish I'd said it myself. My identity and who I am is their balance to my identity. You know, most of the world that knows me, knows who I am, or interfaces with me, thinks of me as the CEO of AT and T. But that really does not define to myself who I am, right? Mm-hmm. And it is a mixture, and it is a balanced mixture. I'm. First and foremost is my faith. Second is the father of my children and the husband of my wife, right? And the son of my mother. Those are kind of next in priority. But then AT&T is right behind them. <laughs> no mistake about it, right? Yep. But then again, the time requirements are probably maybe inverse to that. Tell us, tell us on that front of this, tell us a little bit about the speech. The speech you gave that got so much attention. Uh what inspired you to do that? Um, it was. This was on Black Lives Matter. I, I recall. I, okay. I know it was. It was right on the heels, Richard, of the event that happened right here. I'm pointing to Commerce Street here out my back window. In Dallas, Texas. Where five policemen were killed, mm-hmm. which had occurred right on the heels of Baton Rouge and two black men being killed there, and you can keep going backwards all the way to uh, Ferguson, Missouri. And I was getting ready to speak 
to a large group of our people who are our ERGs, employee resource groups, which means we have we encourage people to participate in these groups here that are very diverse in nature. We have a group for African Americans, and it's just African Americans who get together and and uh, and our uh, Latino groups and Filipino groups and LGBT groups and it's and then what we do is once a year ask them all to come together and and spend time together and it's a large conference so we underwrite this entire conference and they attend seminars together and speeches together and and every year I make it a point to come talk to all of these people and so I was coming in town and uh, getting ready to speak to this group. And if you've heard the speech, you know that I have a very dear friend who had just been asked to address a church congregation on the Dallas and the Baton Rouge situation. And he said some things that were sent to me that night as I was preparing this speech that just my jaw dropped to the floor. And what it was, was his explaining to me his experience as a black man growing up in uh, Louisiana, the first to integrate into uh, schools as a black child and how he grew up and how he is still today as a very accomplished doctor treated in our society. And it kind of just stunned me to hear his perspective and to see suddenly in a very graphic way, this racial issue through his eyes. And it told me that my vision was really blurred on this by Mm -hmm. virtue of where I came from. And that, you know, it was just, it, it struck me like a ton of bricks that this guy and I are close. We are really, really close. And I had no idea what he had experienced and what he had dealt with and was still dealing with today. Mm-hmm. And this, this idea that, man, if this guy and I, who are that close, don't really know that much about each other, we're not talking about these racial issues, man, think about people who we got are a problem. miles away. Yeah. We got big problems as a country. Right if we can't even kind of bridge this divide of communication and even broach this issue with our people of different races. And then I will, I'll share with you a moment of candor that I haven't shared with anybody other than my wife, but to kind of listen to Chris, my friend describe the world through his eyes while I have two grandchildren that are mixed race. And I'm thinking about, it is not inconceivable that they will grow up in the world he grew up in Mm -hmm. and that they will be treated as young adults and adults as he is treated. And suddenly it gets really darn personal, right? Mm -hmm. And you think we got to deal with this. And if if there's anything I can do then I need to figure out how to deal with this. And so all of that just kind of culminated in, in a, a speech that I wrote that literally, I don't think it took 90 minutes to write the speech I don't think there was anything that profound in the speech, to be candid with you. I I honestly do not. But I think it just touched a nerve, a very raw nerve, and particularly inside of AT&T, it gave people the permission. It's okay. Talk about this stuff, all right? Put it on the table. Let's talk about it. Let's deal with it. And so the response to it has been, like, really amazing. But it came from the heart. Yeah, it was. It was unfiltered, man. You know? No, but that's an interesting because you live under a discipline, which requires it, going back to your county background, uh, enormous analytical discipline. Yeah. And yet there's some boundary to the, where emotional, the emotional factor has to come in. Don't you think to be a successful leader? Absolutely. I, I, you know, we, 
I guess the writers, the business writers of this day and age refer to it as the emotional quotient. Mm -hmm. And I I do think intelligent quotient is really important to operate at this level. But you, I think to really excel in leading large groups of people, you have to have a high emotional quotient, ability Mm -hmm. to empathize Mm -hmm. and to connect with people. And that's, I think it's something that could be learned, but it's probably as much innate as it is learned. You said you sat down with your friend, but to to really listen, empathize, put yourself in their shoes. There's so much noise out there and everybody's making noise, but so few are saying things. And when they do, just to take a breath and not look for affirmation, but to just take in information. That's well said. You know, I carry this a step further because... To be a great CEO, to be an accomplished CEO, I shouldn't say great, but to be an accomplished CEO, you have to be able to strike deals, not just M&A, but procurement and, and, and personnel. I mean, everything is striking a deal. And I, I am a strong believer that you can never really strike a good deal. And a good deal is, is really good for you mm. and it's really good for them. You can't strike a really good deal if you don't have an inherent ability to empathize with the other person, understand where they're coming from. Mm -hmm. How are they coming at this? What would they view success to look like? What would you view success to look like? And can you figure out a way to get both of you to that place? And so I think to be a really effective CEO, this ability to, to relate to other people, put yourself in their shoes, to listen to them and to understand what they're trying to accomplish I think that that is a defining difference between really accomplished CEOs and those who don't do as well. And were there any models for you that you can think of as CEOs that sort of stand out as exemplars or leaders? That yeah. My predecessor, uh, Ed, Ed Whitaker, yeah. was, I learned, I learned more from that man probably than I've learned from anybody else, mm-hmm. uh, including my father, right, in terms of how to be a leader and so forth. And he was just a strong guy conviction, but... Ed was always trying to, he, he knew what he needed and what he wanted and what his company needed and wanted, but he was always found a way to move to a place where it would created success for both. All right. Ed did big deals like nobody you've seen. The great personnel deals, you know, brought people into the business that were truly unique and because he had that ability to, to think how the other person viewed the world and to understand how the other person viewed the world. You meet so many leaders but it, particularly in, in your business, which, of course, is uh, communications and technology and now media, what are other qualities that you would say uh, are the difference and fill in the gap between very, very good and exceptional? I, there's one quality that stands out, in my opinion, and that is, look, when you get to a certain place in business, even within AT&T, I tell my people internally this, everybody's smart, mm-hmm. right? Uh, being smart doesn't cut it. Having a high intellect doesn't cut it. It's the people that are really, really smart, have really great judgment, but have the courage to put it to work, yeah. right? And uh, there, are, I know a lot of people who are wicked smart, much smarter than me, all right? But they don't have the courage to put their intelligence to work, mm-hmm. all right? It's, uh, they have a really great idea, recognize there's downside if you were wrong on your idea, and not having the courage to pull the trigger and execute on it. That's what I believe marks the difference between really great leaders and good leaders. 
in my own experience, I just remember getting to Hollywood and thinking, gosh, everybody is really smart. They're, 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 you could fill Fenway Park chock full of just really, really smart people. And the value is an implementation. Yeah. Talk is cheap, but to be able to do it, and particularly when they're deeply entrenched issues and you have to work solid at it every single day, sometimes years at a time, that's, that's what we're talking no longer becomes That's exactly cheap. what we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting. It's a, uh, it is actually a very small population that has both traits, good raw intelligence and the now, courage. How do you identify those people to bring them into the company? So I, obviously at certain levels, people have a track record mm-hmm. that you can look at, right? And, and that becomes very instrumental. But if you're talking about raw talent and unproven talent, boy, Richard, I don't know. I haven't figured that magic sauce out, right? Mm-hmm. I have uh, one example of this where I have been wildly successful at having done this, and I reflect back on what was the secret sauce. You know the individual I'm referring to. Uh, and uh, we brought him in at a very senior level in this company, mm-hmm. but I had known him for 10 years. and But he had, I had known him in the capacity of a consultant, All right. And he had always brought me these great ideas, but he never had to execute on them. I always had to execute on them. Consultants (laughs) advise, doers do. (laughs) So I I, I thought, man, this guy is a great thinker. And I've executed on a lot of his ideas and they've been wildly successful. But will he have the courage to execute on it when it is his to own? We brought him into this company and we gave him a really big job. And he has. Yes, he has. All right, he has. But I is that luck or I don't know. It may be a little bit of a little bit of luck involved. I've got a question and I, I'm I'm sure you've heard before, you know, if, if you could go back to your thirty year old self, uh, what advice would you give that person? And I'm I'm interested to know that. But I'm almost more interested to know that thirty year old version of yourself, what advice do you think he would say to you today? And he would be flat wrong on. Ooh, that's a good question. I'm going to start with the first. What advice would I give that 30-year-old person? I gave it this morning to an individual. Huh. Especially the really bright, ambitious 30-year-old that you know is good, and they know that they're good, Mm -hmm. right? And that is, don't worry about your career. Don't think about it. Don't spend all your time planning it. If you do one thing, and that is take whatever is before you right now and do it with excellence, period. Don't focus on anything else. Do what I am doing right now with excellence. If I've been given a certain responsibility, a certain business unit or organization, step into it. And don't think about how can I get 2 or 3% better sales growth. Or don't think about how can I get 2 to 3% productivity improvement. Think about how can I get 20 or 30% improvement. Mm. Because that will require you to do something. It will require you to take whatever it is you're doing and totally deconstruct it. Take it all the way down to its very core and then rebuild it. And you'll probably rebuild it with new people. And you'll rebuild it with new processes. And I, I can promise people, the ones that do that never have to worry about planning a career. It's, it's the last thing in the world they ought to have to worry about. They can focus on what they're doing right now. The career thing will take care of itself. Yeah. 
And I, I can give that advice because for whatever reason, that's how I approached you know, life as I went through my career. It's still how I approach it today, to be quite honest with you. Um, if I were that 30-year-old, what advice would I have given that would be dead wrong today? Um, man, that's a great question. I'm, it's hard to, for, it's been so long ago since I was 30 years old, <laughs> for one. But... Um, the future's still in landlines. <laughs> no, the future's still in animal husbandry. Payphones, right? <laughs> and, uh, so uh, when I was 31 or 32, and I was finagling, maneuvering to get a particular job that I thought was really important, and it was a job in our Washington, D.C. office, and I thought I was headed there. I talked to an individual who said, yep, you want that job, you're going to get that job. And I was asked to come see the CFO of our company at that time, Don Kiernan. I'm thinking, he's going to tell me I'm going to Washington, D.C. I'm going to get this experience in Washington, D.C., which I look back now and just think, oh, God, help me. I I would hate (laughs) it, right? And he asked me, do you speak Spanish? No. He said, well, you need to learn it. We're moving you to Mexico. And I went to Mexico and worked for Carlos Slim down there for four years. And it was a life-changing four years for myself and my family to go live in a totally different culture, throwing outside your comfort level. You don't speak the language. you got to learn the language and, uh, and to operate in a world that is just radically different from anything you've ever done. Now, if I were offering advice to somebody at that time, I would have said, because we were a highly regulated company, you need to get that Washington, D.C. experience. And I was telling myself that was important. Right, right. I need to get that experience. Reflecting back, dead wrong. Fascinating. Dead wrong. Go do some things and just push yourself to a different place in a different comfort zone. I learned things in those four years in Mexico that could not be replaced and could not have accelerated my knowledge and my skills a any d- faster. D- a little deeper dive there. How did, how did Mexico change you? Oh, my. I... I Get there, Richard, in, in uh, late 1992. And by the way, one thing it does is it brings a family very close together. As you, you as a family move to a culture that radically different, mm-hmm. you know, different language. Uh, the conveniences and comforts of America don't exist there. You as a family grow really, really close together. Mm-hmm. You and the support system around you grows very, very close. But you, I, I learned... So much in terms of, for example, this issue of diversity. I learned the importance of diversity in an executive team and in a board. Because when I went to Mexico, we, were, we had 20,000 wireless subscribers down there. 20,000. That company, we sold it a couple of years ago, as you know, has 250 million subscribers today. When I went down there, the, the Americans, or as we like to call us, the gringos, were running that wireless business. And it was a disaster. We were trying to bring the U.S. business model into running a wireless business down there. Carlos Slim, our partner, it'll never work. It's going to have to be a prepaid model. People down here don't have credit. They don't have bank accounts and so forth. And so he brought somebody in who started running this as a prepaid model, which we said prepaid will never work. Well, it turns out it does work. (laughs) And, And what's the key lesson? You better have people 
who don't just understand a market, but who can live, breathe, and know a market to be successful. And the culture. And the culture. I think the culture is critically important. And so as I think about running AT&T, what are our fastest growing markets? They're Latino markets. They're African-American markets. I better have people around me who understand those markets and understand what those markets desire, what their interests are, and so forth. And I think I better have a board that reflects those markets. You know, we we talk about diversity. It's such a good thing to do. Look, it's a survival thing to do in business today. Because I think if you don't have people around you who know and understand those markets, you're not going to succeed. So there's a gravitational pull to diversity that I think people miss oftentimes. Can we ask you just a few kind of quick questions? Sure. Um, this is the lightning round part of it. All right, here we go. <laughs> is, there a, is there a book or two that you like to give as gifts to people? Yes, Empire of Wealth by John Gordon Steele. Uh-huh. And I think it's critically important that people in business read that book because it is all of the invention, all of the risk-taking, all of the entrepreneurship that was so vital to making America what it is today. Everything from... Uh, steel, oil, and gas, all the way up through telecommunications and and, tele- and, uh, and and the tech Silicon Valley industry now. I think it's critically important. Will you go back and read it periodically from time to time? Of course. Yeah. 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 Do you ever do books on tape? I do. If I'm going to take a drive somewhere, which I don't do very often, but I like to get books on tape or on an airplane, I'll listen to a book on but tape. But you drive fast, so you wouldn't get through the entire book. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> I'm having to focus on the road, you know? In this era of smartphones, where do you personally draw the line just on manners, on social graces and kind of uh, regularity? Obviously, you know, tuck in your shirt, but it's almost impossible not to use it, how it affects every part of our life. Do you have a just a policy at the at the dinner table or? Well, my wife has a policy at the dinner table. <laughs> we do not use them at the this dinner table. This is a table. note to shareholders of AT&T, the real boss. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> That's why I like being CEO at AT&T, because it is where I can be boss. Um, I, every Monday morning, I have a Monday morning meeting with my senior executive team, and they're either on telepresence or they're here. Turn them off. Mm. I don't want the distraction. I find it rude, and I find it offensive, and I find you can't be engaged if you're trying to multitask that way, we talk about how kids these days can multitask. That's bull. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you can't be at your best if you're not focused on what it is you're working on. And so Monday morning meetings, ops reviews, our board meetings, we've had this conversation, our board and I, that we shouldn't be, you know, doing email and so forth during a board meeting. It's just, I, I find it, I don't want to overstate it, but the word that comes to mind is I find it offensive. Yep. You you had mentioned uh, earlier on you're a fan of golf. Is there what what technique or system do you have in place that when you meet someone who really really impresses you and you want to maintain a connection, uh, how do you like to stay connected to that person if you're not um, just naturally interacting with them going forward in in business or in your community? This is an interesting point, and this is something I have happened on to this, and I would say it has nothing has done more to develop me broadly than what I'm about to describe. And that is, I, I always try to surround myself with really wicked smart people who have very broad and diverse backgrounds, right? And uh, Richard Fisher would be a classic example of one of these, that I meet them and I think, I like this individual. This individual doesn't think like I think. They think differently than I think. And I want 
to establish a relationship with him. So I've made excuses to play golf with him and to Uh interact with him. I put together on a regular basis, I do this twice a year, dinners or an event. One of them is in Jackson Hole. But I will invite, generally out of the tech community, a number of people who are very, very accomplished. It's how I met Glenn Hutchins, Uh all right? And uh, and Jeff Yang. Uh-huh. And these are people who are very accomplished. They've done incredibly impressive things in the world of tech. And now I'm doing this in the world of media. And what's unique about these people is being accomplished, being really, really smart. They have absolutely no apprehension to, as we're exchanging ideas, saying, Randall, that's kind of dumb. <laughs> or I couldn't agree less with what you just said. Mm. All right. And engaging in this exchange, and I'm about to have one of these dinners coming up next month, where we enjoy some terrific wine, we enjoy some terrific food, I have topics that I set out that we're going to cover. I did one of these two years ago, and it's what gave me the conviction to pursue a media acquisition. Mm-hmm. All right, It really put in me the conviction that we needed to own premium content. And it's because they're not afraid to push back, not afraid to challenge me. And when you're in roles like the role I'm in here, You know, you heard this term confirmation bias. It's real. Uh All right. And I hear largely within AT&T what people think I want to hear. And that can be very dangerous. And I try to ensure the people that work directly for me have an aversion to that. And I, I would say they largely do. But finding people around you who think, believe, evaluate, assess things radically differently than I do is hugely important and valuable to me. And, uh, and it's a wide range, both politically and belief-wise. And this is actually, it's become the tool for how I have rebuilt the AT&T Board of Directors, candidly. He is part of that. Richard Fisher is. The limited part. <laughs> Very significant part. Is there a headline or a trend that you feel is missing from the national conversation that doesn't get as much attention as it should, and you're surprised it's not just part of the conversation you're having with business leaders? Yeah, and I, this will be a little bit mundane, but I think it's so doggone important. Um, and that is, you know, what's, what's made America great over the years? I mean, what, what has really set us apart? And obviously our constitutional government and, and contract law have been foundational to that. But what that has allowed and what that has bred is a commercial environment that is freakish in nature. There's nothing like it. There never has been. One could question whether there ever will be. And it is this just economic machine that has made this country so great. And you can say there are a lot of underpinnings to that, Judeo-Christian principles and contract law and cause, but, but this economic machine is what has driven this country, and it's not our military might. Our military might is a function of our economic might. And if you believe that, which I do, what is behind that economic machine? And that is, there has always been not only a willingness, but a desire, a craving, a driving to just invest. Mm. We invest in this country like no other country. We just invest at a major level. And as you look over the last few years, that level of investment as a percentage of our economy is at the lowest that it's been since World War II. And we talk about unemployment rates and that fewer people are working today as a percentage of the workforce than ever. And I I go, look, 
if you're investing at the lowest level ever, then you're hiring at the lowest level ever, all right? If you ain't investing, you ain't hiring. That's just a basic foundational principle. And you can say, are you a supply side or demand side? It doesn't matter. If you're not investing, you're not hiring. And we don't stop and ask the question, why aren't we investing? Why is America not investing now? What is it? There's something systemic. We didn't suddenly get stupid. But Randall, we've had historically low interest rates. Money has been free for all practical purposes. Again, reinforcing the question, right? Okay, so is this because of tax policy and fiscal issues, regulation, or is there something broader at work here? I have, I have my own opinions about that, but you asked, what is the headline question yeah. that should be asked? That is the headline and question that should be, be debated. What, that, yeah, now let's debate it. And I, I have strong opinions about, you know, look, when, when capital, you know this better than any human being on the planet— when capital is as liquid as it is today, it can flow to wherever it can be best put to use. And you say we have the highest tax rates for corporations in the developed world in the United States. Is it a secret or is it a surprise <laughs> that more of that capital is not flowing to the United States? It's just it's a, it's a really simplistic qua- equation in my right. mind, right? But I do, th- I do wish we would ask, you know, where where is that? desire to invest capital in in this country, where is it? Where has it gone? Why has it dissipated? And why is it so low? Because that is at the core, I believe, of everything else. And by the way, without the economic growth, without businesses excelling, you don't get wage growth, you don't get health care, you don't get all these things that we just take for granted here. So when you think about your grandchildren's future, we talked about the need to be understand the virtues of diversity and the virtues of capital formation in terms of job creation and moving our economy forward as we always have. Are there any other issues that worry you about the world they're coming into or the world they're going to inherit from us? Yeah, there are. Um, I mean, look, there are some things you and I grew up that you would uh, be presented with an issue or a decision. And at the end of the day, if you have a very difficult decision to make, you can fall back on what's the right thing to do. I mean, just at the end of the day, if you walk into my bathroom in there and you look at the mirror and you're facing a really difficult issue and you just look yourself in the eye and you have the courage to look yourself in the eye and say, what is the right thing to do with this? It's usually answering that question is not hard. Mm. Doing it oftentimes is really hard. But answering just the basic honest question is really, really hard. I don't think that that is a, a basic principle that we as a country follow much anymore. Just what's the right thing to do? Mm. In fact, we spend as much time debating what does right mean as we do just saying what is basically the right thing to do. And as I, and I will say it again, it's it's... 99% of the time, it's not a hard question to answer. It's a hard question to put to work. And so as I think about my children and, and education systems and so forth, we've lost, is that the right word? It's not readily accepted that there is just a basic right thing to do in virtually every situation. And that uh, right and wrong, we, we are apprehensive to call things black and white Right and wrong is generally a black and white question. Hmm. Well, Miles, I think this is one of the great interviews. It certainly has been. And uh, grateful to you. You've been listening to Coffee with the Greats. 
If you like our show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. It really helps others find and discover the show. Coffee with the Greats is produced by Blamo Media. Visit blamomedia.co to learn more. Oh,